Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. The U.S. has hit the debt limit, and we're now taking extraordinary measures to avoid default. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we attempt to look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm your other host, Brendan Buck. Welcome back to another episode, maybe our last episode. Uh, if this podcast is supposed to be about big friction points in 2023, we don't have to go much further than the debt limit. That's really the whole ball game. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot about the developments taking place there and all that we have to look ahead to as this year unfolds. I think there's going to be a lot of drama, of course. Um, but we'll also be covering some other recent developments, the new additions to the Rules Committee, some people coming off of committees. Um, but mostly we're going to talk about the debt limit. Um, we have a pretty uh, important special guest today I'm excited about, Rohit Kumar, uh, who was in 2011 the policy director for Mitch McConnell, was very involved in that debt limit uh, fiasco, uh, as, as I was as well. Um, so we're going to go a little deep into uh, what's going on right now with the debt limit, but also uh, talk with him about uh, how this all works and why some of the options on the table to avoid uh, the crisis may not be so easy. Yeah, we're super excited to bring him on. Um, obviously, as many of you know, he was around in 2011, um, the last time we almost uh, came to uh, failure to raise the debt limit. So we're going to kind of talk to him about what things were like in 2011 and how they compare to the fight that's going on today. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the Rules Committee. Um, as a reminder, the Rules Committee is that extremely powerful committee that's typically placed, the Republicans are typically um, placing the speakers, you know, most trusted allies on this committee. It's the committee that can select everything that's going to the floor um, and can block anything from going to the floor. It selects, you know, whether there's going to be an open rule, meaning there will be amendment process available on the floor or a closed rule. Um, so obviously super important committee. And it was announced recently that there are going to be three kind of hard, you know, hard right members, House Freedom Caucus members. We've got um, Thomas Massey, Ralph Norman and Rep Chip Roy that have been added to the roster of the Rules Committee. Um, so I know we're going to kind of unpack what that means and what that will uh, entail as, as Congress unfolds. But first, Brendan, as a former Boehner staffer, I'd love to get a quick reaction from you on what you think your former boss might have to say about uh, Thomas Massey's. Yeah, not even just as a Boehner, as a Ryan person, too. I mean, the Tom Massey sticks out to me as uh, in 2017 when we had our speaker vote for Ryan, we had almost unanimous support from Republicans, except for one guy didn't vote for Paul Ryan, and it was Thomas Massey. Um, quirky dude, uh, has very strong views on how things should operate and just does not mind upsetting his colleagues. I mean, if you recall, he was the one who made everybody come back and vote at the beginning of um the pandemic uh, on something that everybody knew was going to pass and had everybody fly back from wherever they were just to, to vote and held the floor open. Um, interesting to see if he is the, the team player you, you, you tend to want to have on the, the rules committee. 
so what this can mean, um, and Brendan, you're absolutely right about, um, you know, games being played. I mean, this is the place, right? If you're on the rules committee, you can essentially shut anything down from making its way to the floor because these three members, you know that you're going to have the Democrats who are going to vote against every thing that's coming through the rules committee. So these three could band together and decide that they don't want a piece of legislation to move to the floor um, and they could they could block it. So, I mean, I've heard some conversations around the potential that this is a strategy from McCarthy. Um, you know, obviously, he's going to want to have pieces of legislation that come to the floor that he has enough Republicans to support to pass. So, I mean, maybe this is a way of him, you know, either being able to blame the Rules Committee or if it passes through the Rules Committee, knowing that he's going to have that Freedom Caucus support. I mean, I think that is a little bit of a misguided strategy if that is what's going on here. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe the best case scenario here is that um, it provides a bit of a Freedom Caucus stamp of approval on anything that comes to the floor. Like if you were able to get it through Massey and Roy and Norman, then theoretically you should be able to pass anything. I just feel like you hate to have to figure that out the the hard way if you, if you don't have the votes. And maybe they can sort of use the structure of the rules committee to bring some of these people into the fold. Um, you know, what I have often found is when members actually have more responsibility on their hands and they understand why things are done the way that they are, uh, they're much more understanding of why things are done the way that they are. So maybe that will be the case. I mean, Massey and Norman both made some very interesting comments this week that are worth tracking. Massey basically said he's not there to use a rules committee to stop the agenda. And if that's the case, maybe this isn't that problematic. Ralph Norman said something quite the opposite. He said he's not going to vote for anything in the Rules Committee that he doesn't intend to pass vote for on the floor. Um, I think that runs completely afoul to what the Freedom Caucus has always said, which is that they just want an open debate. And if bills fail, they fail. But, you know, the House deserves a chance to hear things and let the House work its will. Well, if one person on the Rules Committee is just saying, I'm not going to vote for anything because I don't personally like it, um, that seems uh, inconsistent with that. But, you know, this is also a situation where, like, we'll, we'll just need to see not trust that they're going to act a certain way i mean it it could go could go any direction right so could these three even fail to come together themselves yeah and if if they don't all three come together then they can't block anything so maybe maybe thomas massey turns out to be a leadership squish and wants to go along with everything kevin mccarthy does Um, but it does you know it is interesting i had a reporter telling me this week um amazing to watch thomas massey sort of play the inside game remember this he was actually with mccarthy on every one of these votes and now he finds himself rewarded with uh, not just this committee, but also that that weaponization, uh, if you will, committee that he was so intent on uh, creating. I mean, the other thing with the Rules Committee is like, I'm just not so convinced that the way these guys want to run the House is going to produce the conservative outcomes that they do. So say they do allow just sort of open amendments and the House works its will. I think they have a much more conservative view of what the House will look like. And I think there's, you know, we've talked before about, you know, I have skepticism that they're going to even be able to pass appropriations bills. Certainly won't be able to pass appropriations bills if you have open amendment processes where um, Democrats can offer things to tank them. But there was another great example of, you know, the House maybe not being as uh, conservative as they as they hoped this week, where I guess one of the promises McCarthy made was that they would have a vote on the fair tax, which this is the bill that... Uh, would eliminate the current income tax code and replace it with a national sales tax. 
been out there in the conservative world for many years. I remember when I first got to the Hill, Tom Price was a big supporter of the fair tax. It was like a really big thing in Georgia. Uh, John Linder, if anybody remembers him, was one of the original uh, sponsors of the bill. Um, but I think we're finding out really quickly that fair tax doesn't have 218 votes in the House. Um, and even McCarthy says he doesn't support it. And you've got a bunch of people on the record saying they don't support it. Um, and if you force a bill, force a vote on a bill that you think is this great conservative policy and it fails, I don't know that that really advances your cause. It probably sets it back. Yeah, I think it absolutely sets it back. And when you have a Senate, you know, when you have a Senator Schumer who's saying nothing that the House Republicans do is going to make it over to the Senate. I mean, are you just forcing your conference to take a lot of challenging votes and, you know, that they're going to have to answer for? I mean, I, I understand the arguments for fair tax, but from a political perspective, I think it's really easy if you are, you know, forced to go on the record in support of something like this for your opponent to turn around and, and cut a really quick ad that you want to add, you know, 30% of an increase on, you know, all of their, you know, at at the gas pump, at, at your, gro- you know, your grocery bill. Like, that's just a, seems like an unforced error, and, and you know, I don't really understand why they would go down that road. We've always, you know, this is, people have always wanted to vote on this, but we've never scheduled it because we wanted to protect our members from bad votes like this. And this is where you're just going to have to see whether moderates kind of revolt and say, like, do not schedule this. Like, I, I, even if I have to vote against it, I'm, I'm upsetting somebody. And just to go back to to the rules committee, I mean, so these three individuals who are representing such a, you know, fraction of the Republican conference are are getting a real outsized ability to control, you know, what's going to be ultimately voted on on the floor. I, I I don't know that they control like what you can vote on. I think they just can control what you don't vote on. Like just because they're on the rules committee doesn't mean they can like force the House to take up certain bills unless the rest of the Republicans yeah, are, that's are right. going along with it. But that is a, a pretty enormous power. And maybe there are some things that they are able to negotiate through the rules committee. Like I will only vote to advance this bill to the floor if we get an amendment on X or if we get uh, a chance to vote on an alternative. Like who knows what, how much they want to use this leverage to force things the House to do that, again, will be super unpopular politically, force some of their colleagues into bad votes. Um, it's just something to watch really closely. And it, you know, it's got it's starting to get a lot of attention, I think, rightly. But it's, it, it, I think it goes beyond just whether they can stop things. Just are, how are they going to use this authority or, excuse me, this leverage um, to to force the votes to force bad votes yeah, in the house yeah and to get you know potential amendment votes that they want as well I think that's a good point um, the other thing that's in the news this week is the committee's uh, committee assignments and those individuals you know being stripped of their committee assignments I know on this program we talked a lot about how Nancy Pelosi stripping members like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, was a little bit short-sighted, to say the least. I mean, I think we knew this precedent that that was setting, and I think we're seeing that play out with McCarthy. You know, he's threatening, um, you know, Schiff and Swalwell and Omar, um, and that's just kind of playing out. And I know, you know, in, in my view, I think it's pretty misguided of all sides. I think this is just this kind of retribution is just going to continue if someone doesn't say, okay, that's enough. Yeah, we talked about this last year. I mean, this was inevitable. If you... It just, it just creates this vicious cycle, and I don't know. I mean, it feels like for, you know, for the at least for the short term, you're going to continue to see this, where this becomes a normalized thing, where you, you strip people of committees over relatively purely political issues. I mean, but the interesting question, kind of along the lines of 
will moderates sort of stand up for themselves? I don't not entirely clear that the House is going to be able to remove Omar from from foreign affairs. I guess Schiff and Swalwell coming off of uh, Intel, I guess, is a done deal. That that's Intel is a special committee, and the Speaker kind of has the say on that. Um, but if you want to remove somebody from a committee, otherwise you got to vote on it, and you've got a couple members who are Republicans who've said. I didn't like when we did it or like when they did it to us, I'm not going to do it to them. Um, and that would be quite the turn of events if they try to vote on uh, removing somebody and fail. They're obviously, they're down one number now with Greg Stubbe from Florida, um, I guess, having a really bad fall at his house and is going to be gone for a number of weeks. So that uh, four seat margin is now a three seat margin. Well, let's get let's get into the debt limit and kind of shift gears a little bit and just Talk about kind of the state of play, what's going to be happening. Twist my arm. <laughs> if things fail, what are we looking at? So, I mean, it feels like things are, are, are heating up. This was, um, I think last time we, we talked, uh, we expected this may be a August, September, maybe an October problem, but it now feels like a June problem, much sooner than I think a lot of us were anticipating. As you noted at the top, we are now... Uh, past the the debt limit, and they are doing their extraordinary measures uh, to buy us some time. Um, but you know, this was the big thing of of this Congress, and now it's getting moving a little earlier than than anticipated. Um, I guess latest developments: McCarthy um, seems to believe he's secured a meeting to discuss this. The White House seems to be saying we're just having a meeting, like of course we would meet with the Speaker, but he's insistent that this is about the debt limit. White House continues to insist there won't be negotiations on the debt limit, so we'll see um, how that goes. I'm, uh, one of the things I'm just starting to think about is um, what is the ask that Kevin McCarthy has? What is the framework that he is trying to set out here? In 2011, um, in the Boehner uh, days, we uh, we came out with this. You know, you're going if you're going to increase the debt limit we will need spending cuts of an equal amount. That was the construct that we set up, set out. White House resisted it for a little while, but eventually sort of bought into it. Um, I'm curious what, whether there's going to be a similar kind of construct that McCarthy um, is, uh, is working off of. It seems hard to imagine McCarthy being able to get his conference to agree to the asks there. I mean, again, there's... You know, we, we have a few months and, and maybe they will all come down somewhere where they can agree. But, you know, from my perspective, you know, he certainly is from, coming from a weaker, a weaker negotiation when talking to Biden, because I think whatever he's asking for at this point, it, there can be no certainty from Biden or anyone else speaking to McCarthy that he has the authority of his entire conference and he would be able to deliver the votes from the place where he's negotiating. Yeah. I mean, I've said before, I don't think there's 218 Republicans who are going to vote for any debt limit increase. Like, I I just don't think there is a Republican only version of a debt limit increase that he can say is the House position. So it's, it's a little, um, you know, it's not, uh, like he has something he can bring to the table as a concrete, like, look, I've done my job. Um, he's just going to kind of have to throw out a concept, um, I think. So Punchbowl is reporting this week that McCarthy's end goal here is a caps deal. That means setting budget 
caps on discretionary spending, uh, I guess, for two years. Um, that seems fine. Um, I, I think like that's a pretty reasonable thing to ask for. I don't know that that means that, you know, Democrats have any interest in, uh, in, in, uh, going ahead and, and setting, uh, a ceiling on, on, on spending. Um, but it's also kind of useful. Like at some point you're going to have to do that in a budget process anyway. My, my real problem with that is like, that feels incredibly, um, lacking in ambition, and it's going to run head on into this effort that they're undertaking in the House to dramatically cut discretionary spending back to 2002, uh, excuse me, um, 2022 levels. Yeah, that's kind of just what I was going to ask. Um, I mean, do you think that this placates those members who have been, you know, railing to their constituents and, and you know, through the national media that they want to be pursuing in exchange for raising the debt limit, these deep, you know, non-discretionary spending cuts? Well, I, I think if McCarthy could say to the conference, um, I won't re- increase the debt limit um, without getting the discretionary caps, you know, for this year, for example, to the 2022 levels, um, which is in effect kind of going back two years instead of like increasing to 2024 levels as we normally would, we'd be going backwards to 2022 levels. I think he could sell that to his conference. I don't think there's any chance in the world they're going to be able to get that kind of deal with Biden. And so my point is, if he's negotiating with Biden towards a deal that is not that level at the same time as he's trying to run these bills through the House at the lower level, um, what do his members say at that point? Like, why are you undercutting our efforts to cut spending back to 2022 levels when you're negotiating with Biden at the very same time for something higher? Um, like that is a reasonable outcome. Like I don't doubt, I don't dispute that. I just, I, my whole thing on this is like, it's the politics that are going to be the biggest problem here for McCarthy to be able to get a deal, negotiate a deal and bring a bill to the floor. Like he just has to have, you know, we've talked before, doesn't take a whole lot of people to be upset to try to kick him out. And he's going to have to manage that and be willing to bring something to the floor. Like not everybody's going to vote for this, but are they going to be content that he fought hard enough to, to do it? Yeah. And we've talked a little bit about the discharge petition and the possibility that Democrats will be willing to kind of work together to help bail out Republicans. I think the more and more folks are talking about this, it just seems just so fantastic. Like it's just seems so unrealistic that this would happen with this moving target. Um, yeah. Hakeem Jeffries saying, you know, they should just do a, a clean debt limit increase and maybe they'll introduce that and maybe they'll do a discharge petition on it. But like, I think people should recognize at this point, the quote unquote moderates in the house are not looking to move quickly, a clean debt limit increase. Like they want to run out this play. They want to see if they can get spending cuts, even the most, middle of the road Republican thinks that this is the moment to use some leverage and try to get something done. So maybe at the end of the day, they kind of fold on that um, and and go with Democrats to do a clean debt limit increase. But like, I think people just need to appreciate like that is not the standing position of the people who everybody hopes are going to come in and kind of save the day at the end. Yeah. Um, Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of these alternatives to legislative action that have been talked about a lot through the media and other outlets. Um, So we're going to call these extra extraordinary measures. (laughs) 
So um, the first one that folks are talking about is, of course, minting the coin. The favorite of producer Benji, who's been promoting minting the coin for a long time. Shout um, out. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to say in that. Uh, Secretary Yellen has said that that is a gimmick and they're not interested in it. Um, I have no idea what the sort of long-term economic consequences of that type of thing is, but um, I just it feels super gimmicky and I, I can't imagine that's going to actually be a, a solution. So the second being the treasury just kind of ignoring this whole thing and just sort of saying that debt limit is unconstitutional. We don't have to abide by it. Um, and just kind of continuing to operate. That feels much more like a live option than I think people are giving it credit. Um, Look, I've seen some convincing arguments. Yeah, I mean, the Constitution says we have to pay our obligations. And, you know, it'd be a situation where you kind of have two statutes in conflict with each other. One that says you can't borrow any more than this and another that says we're going to pay this. And we passed a law to say that this needs to be uh, paid for. Um, so I could see a, you know, a reasonable argument that you just kind of plow through. Downside on that is like that clearly goes to the courts. And that's a really dangerous place to be just kind of tied up in our legal system about the credit rating of the United States and the outcome to that um, being up in the air for however long that would last. Economic um, disaster. I also just think at that point, like it gets hard to like when things when you blow past Republicans, you're going to start digging in. The White House is therefore at that point is dug in. Um I just think people are going to have a hard time coming back and doing something when you kind of use these extraordinary, extraordinary extra extraordinary measures. Um, so I'm, I'm just like, I think, I don't think we should rule that out um, as something that could potentially happen, um, but it would still be wild. Third, lastly, uh, there's some talk about Treasury getting creative with how they're selling bonds as a way to generate extra revenue. Obviously, this wouldn't be a long-term solution. Yeah, this is like one of those, uh, categorize this as uh, you need someone way smarter than me to explain how this works. But there are smart people out there that say you could set certain um, uh, uh, rates on the bonds that would uh, generate a bunch of money. That, that, again, as you said, that's not like that's basically buying you more time. That's not a permanent solution. Um, eventually, that would still require a debt limit increase. And why I don't like that idea, again, if you do something that is perceived as sort of beyond normal bounds, I think you're just going to see Republicans like lose their minds and uh, make it even harder to eventually do, do anything. To I, at, the, at the end of the day, you have to find some way to increase a debt limit, I think, um, or get rid of it, which is I've been on the record saying you should do at this point. Um, but none of those are good options, which is why, um, you know, this is a, a fight that we have to watch really, really closely. I know a lot of people were hoping that um, Mitch McConnell uh, would kind of play uh, savior here. He had some interesting comments this week that uh, basically this is not my problem. Uh, Kevin McCarthy. I wish him well. <laughs> I wish him well. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the only thing that I, I find really interesting about this. McCarthy seems to be putting this all on his own shoulders, which uh, is interesting to me. In 2011, Boehner um, originally tapped Eric Kanner to be the sort of lead negotiator on this. Um, there are a lot of reasons you do that, um, one of which is to make sure that the rest of your leadership team like, is bought into whatever you're doing, um, has their fingerprints on whatever deal you do. 
Um, this feels very much like Kevin McCarthy doesn't really care um, about that. And maybe that's fine. Like maybe at the end of the day, he recognizes he's speaker. He's going to be accountable for whatever the deal is himself. Um, but it's just interesting to me that he's not widening, at least at this point, not widening, widening the circles very much and trying to um, be, the, be the, the key deal maker with the White House. Yeah, I thought it was interesting during the speaker battle, we saw McHenry doing a lot of negotiating and running around on the floor back and forth to members. And, you know, I don't know how in lockstep he is with McCarthy on the debt limit right now, but, you know, he's certainly signaling that he wants what he's calling kind of a reasonable, you know, GOP leaders, like be reasonable in these debt ceiling talks. I mean, that's kind of his posturing. Um, I just think it'll be interesting to continue kind of watching Henry and kind of seeing how how he plays this yeah I mean he's even said just like don't use this he said like let's separate these these two issues I mean just the final thought I mean the thing that I'm thinking spending a lot of time thinking about right now is just I, I expect at some point there will be some kind of agreement between McCarthy and the White House for some type of very minimal nominal um, reform that they can use as cover for, for bringing something to the floor. Um, but that last part, I think, is the, the hardest thing. I think people need to appreciate how difficult it is going to be for Kevin McCarthy to bring to the floor whatever this deal is. I just It seems highly unlikely to me that there's going to be any large-scale agreement. Um, you know, Back in 2011, I think Boehner appreciated that a big agreement was much easier to swallow than any kind of small agreement. Um, I just don't think a big agreement is possible right now. And I imagine whatever McCarthy comes up with, I know whatever McCarthy comes up with is not going to be acceptable to the very group that almost cost him the job. And even if it's a really good deal, you know, objectionably, uh, I just don't know that they're going to see it that way. And there's just going to be this intense pressure to not put the bill on the floor. You gotta get something through rules committee as we discussed. Um, you know, if something doesn't get the majority of the majority, um, I think he, I don't like wanna overstate it, but it, there is the real reality that he may need to be choosing between a motion to vacate, which he may be able to survive, um, and preventing default. And that's just an awful situation to be in. And that's the, the thing that I'm really most most concerned about. Yeah, now that it only takes, you know, one member to bring this up, I, I think that's a very real possibility that people should be thinking about as these negotiations continue. All right, well, let's continue this conversation about the debt limit. Let's go ahead and bring in our guest, Rohit Kumar. Rohit Kumar is a principal and co-leader of PwC's Washington National Tax Service practice. And before joining PwC, he was the domestic policy director and deputy chief uh, for Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. And of course, he was also around the negotiating table during the 2011 debt limit fight as a real policy expert uh, on what a default would mean for the U.S. economy. Rohit, good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's a weird thing to be expert in, but I guess it's true. <laughs> It does happen to be true. So before we get into some of these specifics about what's going on uh, right now, and I guess how that compares to the 2011 conversation, I uh, would love for you to just kind of lay out a debt limit 101. Uh, how did we get here? Kind of what's the history behind the debt limit? Why is it Congress's responsibility? And of course, what happens if we fail to raise the debt limit? Yeah, so the debt limit is we're actually one of a, just a 
a handful of countries that have uh, this sort of thing. So Congress by statute uh, sets an upper limit on how much debt the US can incur, right? And so, and, and because we are pretty much always spending more than we're collecting in revenue, we run budget deficits pretty much every year and we have a national debt of like 31 um, trillion dollars. So episodically we hit the debt limit, right? We've issued enough debt to hit the limit and now we've hit the cap and you know we're out of sort of borrowing space. Our credit card has been um, maxed out. And so Congress has to, um, in order to kind of continue to pay all the bills, all the, to make all the commitments, to pay all the commitments that we've committed to, um, Congress has to raise the debt limit. It, it actually used to be, uh, back in like the olden days, uh, Congress had to approve every debt issuance. I mean, that seems kind of crazy today because Treasury is like auctioning off T-bills like weekly. But it used to be like every time uh, Treasury wanted to like go into the debt markets and raise money, Congress had to approve it. At some point, Congress got tired of that and thought, well, this is dumb. We'll just give you, you know, X million dollars or billion dollars or trillion dollars of borrowing authority and let us know when you hit that, we can come back um, and have a conversation. Uh, so that's the statutory debt limit. We actually technically hit it um, already. We hit it last week. Uh, but the Treasury Secretary has these what we call extraordinary authorities. They're not actually that extraordinary anymore because they've been used, you know, dozens of times now. That basically allows her to sort of extend our borrowing authority by, you know, uh, moving some money around inside some federal accounts. That doesn't last forever. Uh, but in this context, it probably gets us until, well, according to the Secretary, it gets us into at least early June, may get us a little further. That remains to be seen because we have April 15th, tax payments are due for everybody. So we'll see how much revenue the federal government collects then. And then there is for those that make estimated payments, there's another deadline on June 15th. So the kind of the question is, you know, we're clearly going to get to April 15th. Will the April 15th deposits be enough to get us to June 15th or won't they? If they are, then we'll get to June 15th and we'll see how far that gets us. But I think if you're thinking about the congressional calendar, this either has to get done before June 15th because the April payments don't get us past June 15th. Um, but even if they do, it has to get done before Congress takes its August recess, you know, at the end of the month of July. So what happens in your, uh, if, if you were to predict, if we were to somehow not increase the debt limit in time, can you sort of paint a picture for us of kind of, I imagine it's kind of a cascade of things, or maybe it's a, an earthquake. What, what, what would happen if we didn't raise the debt limit? Yeah, so the Fed actually did um, its own analysis of what might happen if we were to default on our debt. They did this in 2013, but they didn't release it until uh, several years later. Uh, but what the Fed said, and this was their best case scenario. So to be clear, this is like the least bad version of what happens if we default on our debt. Um, we have a two quarter recession. The market drops 30%. So everyone that's got an IRA or a 401k, you immediately lose almost one third of the value. Um, of that. Unemployment's up about 2%. That's a couple million people uh, lose their jobs. Um, corporate bond rates go up another 2%. Um, and even two years later, the economy is 3.5% smaller. GDP is 3.5% lower than it would have been had we not defaulted on our debt. Now, to be clear, that is the best case scenario. And that only focuses on the near-term impacts of defaulting on our debt. It doesn't contemplate the longer term impacts of we forever pay higher interest rates because people don't trust us to not default um, in the future. It also doesn't um, incorporate the risk that a recession in the United States spreads to other countries, triggers a global recession or yet worse, a global depression. 
Um, I will tell you in 2011, when we were, um, when we came within a couple of days of defaulting on our debt, um, we were talking about it. And I promise you, this is how we were talking about it just amongst ourselves. Sort of the analogy we were using was, what if the US and Russia launched all of their nuclear weapons at once, right? The, the available scenarios are a lot of people perish, like billions of people perish, or everyone perishes because nuclear winter and you know the whole earth, you know, all population dies off. That's not to say that defaulting on our debt is quite the same as you know global nuclear winter, but that was how we were thinking of it um, in 2011 because the consequences are kind of almost too terrible to fully contemplate. And you know, in this case, it's a totally self-inflicted injury, right? This would be something that happened only because we decided to make it happen, not because it happened by accident. Rohit, that is really dark. I didn't expect you to go. <laughs> that, that it's not dark. every day that you get global nuclear winner in a no. conversation. Yeah. But let me let me dig into this a little more. So I guess defaults can can be sort of defined two ways though, right? So we have a bunch of obligations that Congress has set out that things need to be paid. That is part of, but also somewhat different from the interest on our debt. And I think that sometimes people talk about default as we're unable to pay the interest on our debt. Can you talk a little bit about um, how Treasury might be forced to handle that? Some people talk about this issue of, of prioritization. Well, we'll always have enough money coming in where you could pay interest on the debt, so we wouldn't technically default on our loans. Um, but uh, there's also all kinds of other things that you, you have to pay for. So how, how do you think about that? Yeah. So yes, this shows up in the, um, in the sort of in the parlance of prioritization. Like if we actually hit the debt limit and Congress didn't act, it's not that the federal government has no money. It's just that it doesn't have enough money to pay all its obligations. So then the question becomes, well, what do they pay and what do they not pay? And, you know, so the logic goes, well, we would clearly pay the interest on our bonds, right? We would pay our bondholders first because, that would make sense. So we wouldn't technically have defaulted. We would just fail to make some other payment, whether Social Security recipient or you know a soldier uh, out in the field or Medicare or whatever. But we would fail to make some other payment. We would pay um, our bondholders. The problem with that is sort of uh, twofold. Um, one is the Treasury systems aren't actually designed to only make certain payments, right? Treasury is making literally millions of payments every week. Right. And so to go in and strategically pick which ones you're going to pay and not pay would, would be a Herculean effort. But let's just stipulate or hypothesize that they hire a million computer programmers and they fix that problem and they get there and they can make the interest payments uh, first and then they pay whatever else they can pay. And then some people don't get paid. Um, the problem is the ratings agencies don't view it as, oh, that's OK. Right. Uh, being, uh, you know, sort of solvency is not quantum physics. You cannot exist in two states at the same time. You are either solvent or you are not. And the moment that you fail to make a payment that you are otherwise obligated to make, whether it's a contractual payment or an interest payment or you know, a, you know, a payment to a social security recipient, the ratings agencies treat that all the same, which is you have defaulted on your debt. You have failed to make a payment that you are lawfully obligated to make. And it doesn't really matter who you failed to pay. You failed to make a payment and um, you have defaulted. And immediately all of the consequences that we talked about or that the Fed modeled in 2013 those come to pass regardless of who you failed to pay. The other problem is just a political one, which is let's just say you let's say Congress passes a law that says, hey, Treasury, pay the interest on the debt first and then pay other people later. Well, you just sort of that in the abstract sense, that sounds like it makes sense. Then but then you start to think about, well, who are our bondholders? Well, there are a lot of US citizens that buy Treasury bills as a safe haven investment. There are also a lot of foreign governments that buy 
U.S. Treasury bills and, and sovereign wealth funds of foreign governments. And so you quickly find yourself in this posture of paying foreign governments and you know uh, foreign holders of U.S. bonds before you pay some more politically sympathetic U.S. person, whether it's a soldier or a Social Security recipient or a Medicare recipient or NIH or the FAA or whatever. Uh, but you can quickly see how this becomes a huge political liability for anyone that thinks, oh, no, we'll just pay the bondholders first. Well, that sounds fine in the abstract. When you just take like just dig one layer deeper, you run into a host of political problems. Yeah. I mean, I think the important takeaway is like there's no simple way to avoid a pretty catastrophic situation if we if we don't. No. And and done. likewise, there are always these um, and, they, and they're showing up again, these what I view as sort of exotic theories of, well, maybe there's a way to do this without Congress passing a law like maybe the treasury can mint a platinum coin and say it's worth a bazillion dollars and they'll just give it to the fed and the fed will credit you know our account or we will declare the debt limit to be unconstitutional violates the 14th amendment or you know some other such kind of wild um theory of the case uh, to which i sort of say two things one um in 2011 we came within about 72 hours of defaulting on our debt right in, in 2011 default day was on a tuesday and Friday night, I was 100% convinced we were going to default on our debt. Like, I just didn't see a path to a legislative result. If there had been a non-legislative path available, we would have found it in 2011. Like, we were well incentivized to find it. I was looking for it. Uh, uh, you know, everyone, Treasury was looking for it. Uh, you guys were looking for it. Everyone was looking for it. It just, it's not there. Um, declaring it unconstitutional. Okay, fine. You can try that. But our bondholders, people that are buying the bonds that are issued after that declaration, are immediately going to price in some risk that at some point down the road, the court's going to be like, no, you were wrong about that. Right. The debt limit is constitutional and the paper that's been issued subsequent to that is, in fact, worthless, right, is invalidly issued. So, of course, investors are going to charge a risk premium. That's going to look like default just by um, another name. So there's not really a non-statutory way out of this. At some point, Congress is going to have to pass a law. That law might be Mr. President, you can request a debt limit increase and we can tell you you got it wrong, but that still requires a statute. There's no non-statutory path out. I, I really wish there were because it would have saved me a lot of grief and aging and gray hair in 2011. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, and I, I know we're going to talk a little bit more and we're going to ask your opinion on some of the options that Congress is considering and, and um, you know has before them to, to maybe get around this, but I'd love to just hear the mood in 2011 as compared to, you know, what conversations are like now, obviously we're, we still, you know, have a few more months, but kind of paint the picture of what things were like in 2011, maybe backing up a few months before you were, you know, 72 hours outside of that default day. But what, what, what would you say is, is uh, the mood now and does it compare? So it's actually in some ways eerily similar because the most of the negotiations in 2011 were actually conducted between Speaker Boehner and then President Obama, right? It was a Speaker White House, Speaker President um, conversation. And indeed, that's kind of where we're going to start this con conversation again uh, here in 2023, because we have the same alignment of kind of political forces. We have a Republican House, we have a Democratic Senate, we have a Democrat in the White House, right? So lawmaking occurs where I like to think of the world in like Venn diagrams. Lawmaking occurs where the Republican House circle overlaps with the White House circle. And wherever, whatever policy will pass a Republican House to be signed into law by a Democratic president, the Senate will have 60 votes for. Um, and so the natural instinct here and the natural course of events is 
get the Republican speaker, the Democratic president, get them to talk, figure something out, whatever they can agree to, that's what um, becomes law. Now, of course, in 2011, ultimately those negotiations between Speaker Boehner and President Obama failed to yield um, a result. There's Everyone's got a theory about why it didn't yield a result, but we can all stipulate to the fact that it did not yield a result. And so Senator McConnell and Vice President Biden kind of came in near the end of that process when it was clear that you know a, a speaker-president uh, negotiation was not going to succeed. Um, and then we sort of had to run a salvage operation and figure out like, okay, how are we going to um, get from here to there? Now, the one thing we had in 2011 that we don't yet have uh, here in 2023 was that Speaker Boehner had set forth uh, sort of an absolute criteria, which is that for every dollar of debt limit increase, we're going to have a dollar of spending reduction, right? And that became kind of the unified Republican position going into the negotiations. We don't have that as of yet. And it remains to be seen whether Speaker McCarthy can unite 218 House Republicans around what a unified set of asks might be. Speaker Boehner was able to do that in 2011. And so that clearly strengthened his hand in the negotiation. And even though that wasn't the Senate Republican sort of opening bid, we carried that um, through the negotiations. So, you know, I think the conversation will start with the same sort of actors, Republican speaker, Democratic president. Um, but, you know, for for this to work out, even even something that even like marginally approaches what happened in 2011, the first thing that has to happen is Republicans have to have a unified ask. And for that ask to have meaning, it has to unite at a minimum House Republicans. And, you know, we're not there yet. Now, it's still early days. Uh, but I do wonder how easy it will be, or maybe I should put it differently. I, I suspect it will be quite difficult to unite 218 out of 222 House Republicans around a unified set of requests in conjunction with raising the debt limit. So in 2011, though, we we set that standard, but we didn't actually ever pass something in the House that you know laid out a House position in, in that way. Do you think... So what, what 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 do you think McCarthy needs to lay out in terms of that standard? Does he need some type of, you know, one-for-one one framework like we had before, which, of course, I don't think that's reasonable to expect right now. Um, but you're not saying he needs to pass something, do you? No, but we you, did have cut, cap, and balance. Uh, well, that was, that was a break glass, you know, kind of buy time deal. That was never really our position. Position though. at the end of the day. But it, look, it, it did show unity in the caucus. And then, what, so what, frankly, in my mind, it gave credibility to the, this is our standard. And, and more importantly, you didn't have other House Republicans saying, uh-uh, I'm not doing that, or I disagree. Like you didn't have people publicly taking pot shots at the standard. Some might have said it's not good enough, but no one was like, no, that's too much for me. I'm not for that. I think here, the challenge you're going to have is you've got some on the in the Freedom Caucus, right, of the 20 that wouldn't vote for Kevin McCarthy on first pass, who are going to have a set of criteria that they're going to insist upon in conjunction with anything associated with the debt limit. And then you're going to have moderate Republicans who might be willing to publicly say, yeah, I'm not for that. Like, I'm not for that level of spending reduction or that level of entitlement reform or, you know, whatever um, it might be. So I think uh, to be credible in the negotiation or to maximize credibility in the negotiation, there's got to be a standard. And there's got to be at least facially unity within the caucus um, around that that demand. And, and, you know, this is where a narrow majority makes it more challenging because you only need like four or five people to publicly be like, no, thank you, before everyone can count and say, well, you don't have 218 for that. Yeah. And, and I think this is where it gets hard really fast because you have people saying, well, you need to be reasonable in what you ask for. Patrick McHenry saying things like that. 
Um, but I don't know that quote unquote reasonable is exactly what this conference is looking for. So let me be more specific though. Apparently it's being reported this morning that uh, Kevin McCarthy is has in mind that he just needs a, a uh, discretionary budget caps deal. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds reasonable on its face, but it makes me wonder if that's the kind of thing that this conference actually thinks is worthy of supporting to get uh, to raise the debt limit. What is your reaction to this idea that he's floating, the idea of a, of budget caps? It just feels not particularly ambitious, yet still also maybe you know unachievable in its own way. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think discretionary caps are actually a, a very reasonable thing to ask for, in part because you're going to need those eventually anyway, right? If you're going to have anything appropriate, uh, anything approaching a normal appropriations process, the first thing you have to do is decide how much money are we going to spend in the discretionary accounts, and then you can fight about how you allocate it between defense and non-defense and the various other subsidiary disagreements that will um, crop up. Uh, and so that would be a, a reasonable thing to ask for. It's also something you got to get eventually, and if you... Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in Sun Tzu's The Ancient Art of War, and one of the maxims is to exploit the inevitable. So if you inevitably have to get this agreement, you might as well, you know, use it for as much as um, you can. Whether it's enough for the entire caucus, I would bet not. Uh, but again, anything that passes the House with just 218 Republican votes is not becoming law, right? Not in this orientation of government. Lawmaking will happen in something that maybe at least half the House Republican caucus can support a majority of the majority. Um, a lot of congressional Democrats, House Democrats would have to support it that the president would sign. Yeah. I guess my, I guess my concern is, I think that makes sense as an end game. Like if this is the best you can do, we're going to get some a budget cap. I guess what I'm concerned about is that we're six months away or five months away and McCarthy's floated it. And how does the conference react to that? If that's what they're fighting for, for the next five months, it may be pretty clear that there's not, and, and I, I totally agree that a lot of these people who are complaining are never going to vote for the end thing anyway. I just wonder if uh, he's tossed something out there that's going to ultimately get beat up by his own folks as, as insufficient. Uh, I mean, you know, yes, probably. Uh, the question is, is he just cutting to the chase? And let, let's just fast forward to the end game. We know where this is where, where this is where the deal space potentially exists. Let's get there sooner rather than later. Let's rip the bandaid off and kind of move on, which is, you know, sometimes an effective strategy. The flip side is often people want to see you fighting, even if they know that at the end of the day, it's not going to yield a result. They, there's like political value in the fight for the sake of the fight. And that you don't get here. If you're just cut to the end game and, and, and are kind of reasonable off the bat and get an agreement relatively easily, there's always gonna be some people who think, you know, that was too easy. You could have gotten more if you'd fought harder. And it could minimize, you know, some of the disgruntled voices that we're going to hear from between now and then. It could kind of give you a little bit of cover for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to get your reaction to some of the statements that McConnell was making this week, um, sort of wishing McCarthy well, saying that this is, you know, not really going to be his problem right now. Um, how do you, how do you take that? Um, so look, I, I think he's just being very realistic about the situation we find ourselves in, which is, you know, again, lawmaking happens where the Republican House and the Democratic president can find agreement. And if they can find agreement, the Senate will invariably produce 60 votes for said thing. I think the other dynamic um, is, you know, Senator McConnell is nothing if highly self-aware. Um, and so I think he understands, even if he cut an absolutely fantastic deal, the best possible deal available under any set of you know, uh, circumstances, the mere fact that it was a deal cut between, you know, President Biden and, and Leader McConnell would per se, make, per se make it insufficient for House Republicans, right? They just couldn't conceive that Mitch McConnell would cut a good deal right off the bat. 
right? And so he understands like, even if I insert myself into this process and really I don't belong here, it really is a speaker or president thing. But even if I did, it doesn't yield a result, right? It's just gonna get beat up um, by House Republicans. The omnibus is sort of a perfect example of you know, how that dynamic um, might play out. And so if he is to have a role here, other than to help process whatever Speaker McCarthy and President Biden can agree to, it has to come kind of like it did in 2011, near the end after all other options have failed. And then people realize, okay, there may be only one play left. It's to get Senate Republicans, Senate Republican leader McConnell and the White House to engage in a negotiation, figure something out. No one will be happy with it, but it beats default, right? And that's the issue. At the end of the day, kind of anything is better than defaulting on our debt. And that's sort of the weakness of using the debt limit as a point of leverage in these collateral conversations because, and even Senator Rubio said this uh, in the press today, it doesn't work very well to try to ransom this thing because everyone knows you're ultimately not going to do it. Like you're not going to actually trigger default on the debt. Yeah. I, 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 I tend to generally agree with your uh, interpretation of his comments. Also would just say like, I think the house is going to have to be seen as like dying, trying on this first and falling probably on their face a few times before McConnell might have permission to come in and do something. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so that, I mean, that's where I get with my, my comment about McCarthy. Like, I think he needs to at least be seen as trying to be ambitious before reverting to the reasonable deal. Because as you just noted, like there's a lot of kabuki theater that has to go on, uh, for these things before you can get to that, that last, um, that last minute deal, which is, I assume it will end up being last minute. Yeah, um, I do too. Do need to get you out of here. I, I imagine, uh, but want to get your reaction to this concept that is floating around people saying, well, this won't be that big of a deal. People are just going to sign a discharge petition and send something over to the Senate, like a clean debt limit increase. What's your read on that? I mean, my interest, I am not a creature of the house. I have done some reading on the discharge petition process. And I think it is just a tool that is ill suited to the task. I would be loath to take it off the table, but at the moment you don't have moderate house Republicans willing to sign a discharge petition. Um, that's the sort of thing that only happens after it's clear that a negotiation is going to fail or that people are being unreasonable or whatever it is. And you kind of probably need an X date, like an actual deadline uh, to work against to sort of trigger people to move in that direction. And I think the problem with a discharge petition is by the time we have an X date, there may not be enough days available, literal days in the calendar available for a discharge petition to work its winding way um, through the house. And moreover, it is not like the speaker, if this is being done against his wishes, it's not like he's without his own tools here to make this more complicated, right? So one of the requirements is you gotta wait 30 legislative days. Well, legislative days are different than calendar days. You only create a new legislative day if the House adjourns um, at the end of a session and then reconvenes the next day and it's a new legislative day. Well, you could just recess at the end of the day instead of adjourning. And then you've not created a new legislative day, but you have burned a calendar day and we are yet still one day closer to default, even though in, you know, in legislative terms, the day is the same. So there are things that uh, a speaker who's feeling jammed can do to try to make that more difficult. You know, the discharge petition works better or something that isn't super time sensitive, like the, the only time that it's ever really worked or worked to pressure action was on a campaign finance reform bill from years and years and years ago. And that wasn't time sensitive. It was, you know, there was a political instinct around it, but it kind of built slowly over time and ultimately forced sort of regular order action. I don't recall a time where a discharge petition was used successfully as an irregular order mechanism and certainly not with something that has a real time sensitivity to it, yeah. like a debt limit increase. Yeah. The other one was the XM Bank. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Like you have to sort of, 
have a time machine to back up and have introduced something uh, at the last minute for a discharge petition to work, unless they just introduce a clean debt limit increase with plenty of lead time and it's, and it's sitting there available at the last minute. So I guess my, my final question to you is, what is your thought on what would happen if the House did send the Senate a purely clean debt limit increase? I think it depends on when it happens. If it happens like, you know, days before default, I think you probably get 60 votes for that. But that's really? a scenario where it's passed the House, which means it's gotten some Republican support in the House, because there's no way that it passes without some Republican support. And it would matter whether it got eight House Republican votes or 80 House Republican votes. If it got eight, getting to 60 in the Senate might be more challenging, but doable. If it gets 80, you feel pretty good it's going to get 60 in the Senate. Yeah, I promise you it's not going to be 80 if we get to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, Rohit, thank you so much uh, for sharing your wisdom and experience with us. This is obviously something we're all going to be watching very closely over the next few months, and I know a lot of people uh, will be uh, interested in, in following your commentary on it. So thank you very much for joining us. Good to see you. Uh, good to talk to you, um, and we'll be in touch. Sounds good. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining this week's episode of Control. I think this is actually going to be our last episode of our mini series here. Um, this has always been intended to be a, a limited run podcast. So we are grateful to all of our guests, everyone who listened. Um, hopefully we made you think about some things and, and hopefully made you a little smarter about how the house operates. I have a sneaking feeling we'll be back um, later in the year as this uh, drama continues to unfold. Um, but uh, until next time, thank you very much. Um, we've really enjoyed covering this extraordinary time in Congress, and I know the fun is going to continue. And we'd be remiss if we did not give a huge shout out to our producer, Benji Englander. We are so grateful for all of the work that he does behind the scenes to make sure that um, our podcasts are sounding great and going great. And come out in a timely manner. Thank you very much, Benji. Thank you all. Thank you, Annalise. This has been really fun. We'll talk to you guys later. 